take your Bibles and turn with me back to Colossians chapter 2 this evening. Colossians 2, we'll pick back up where we left off this morning. It's become a little bit of a family custom over the last year, although it's taking place less now than it did in the summer last year, to uh, in the evenings take a walk uh, together as a family. Uh, During shutdown, it was almost every night uh, that it's like, well, I guess this is what we're going to do. We're going to go take a walk around the neighborhood and uh, try to see our neighbors as long as they're not worried or scared or anything like that. It'd be nice just to see some people, talk to some people. And uh, so we started doing that. And uh, back then, it was pretty much every night. It's not quite as frequent now. And uh, most of the time, Melinda and I are walking, and uh, the kids are either walking or riding or biking or doing Uh, any number of different activities going way ahead of us, coming back to us, going way ahead of us, coming back to us. Uh, But almost inevitably, there are a couple of them. We go to these three areas, and we finish the first one, and we finish the second one. And as we're approaching the third one, getting ready to hit this final cul-de-sac and then kind of turn and come home, there are a couple of our kids every time that say, can we go ahead and just go home? Like, they just want to race ahead and get home and do whatever uh, as soon as they get home. And usually it's like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Uh, I'm tempted to put them on the spot. I won't. Uh, But to say, so what does dad always say? Because inevitably when they're like, well, dad, can, can we just go home? I always say, sure, just watch for cars. Every time. Like, they know. They give me a hard time about it now. Like, They've kind of like, okay, Dad, come on, we know. Okay, watch for cars. Um, but in my parents' brain, I can't get around that. You know, I guess when your kids are really little, you're saying, hey, wa- be careful, watch out for cars when you cross the street. Now they're riding bikes on their own, and um, because they're out of my sight, out of my control, I'm going, hey, watch out for cars. I suppose there will be a day down the road where they'll be in a car, and I'll say, now don't be texting and driving. Um, But, you know, it's just one of those things where you're issuing warnings, like there's danger out there, there are distractions present, so be vigilant, watch out. In Colossians 2, we started this morning listening to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, tell the Colossian believers, watch out. There is danger out there. There is distraction out there. And at the outset, we might listen to the warnings that he's giving and going, yeah, I'd never get into that. I I see it. Like, why would anybody fall into that kind of error? But I would remind us that often distraction is very subtle. I was thinking earlier this week by way of illustration about those studies that say, you know, someone glances down at their cell phone while they're driving and they're like, oh, it was just like a half second. And they're like, no, actually it was seven. Uh, Because you thought it was just a moment, but actually it was a whole lot longer than that. And in those seven seconds, here's how much ground you covered, etc. Or perhaps like me, you have the experience where you're driving, and without thinking about where you're going, you kind of default in certain directions. Uh, It's so often for me to come out of our development, turn left, turn left, turn left, and I'm on my way to church. Like three lefts and we're there. So we can be going, getting in the car to go to the store, to go to Walmart, wherever it might be, and I'm supposed to go straight, and I'm getting in the left-hand turn lane. And one is like, where are you going? Like, um, I'm distracted. I'm not there. Paul is saying to these believers, you need to watch out. You need to be vigilant. There's danger out there. This error is being taught, and it will destroy you if you follow it. 
Again, look with me at the two commands that highlight some of this error in verse 16 and then again in verse 18. We looked at verse 16 this morning. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of new moon or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Verse 18, tonight, let no man beguile you of your reward. In a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Having come out of that section in verses 13 to 15, where he gloriously points to the work of Christ, you're uh, given spiritual life again, your sins are canceled out so that you now are forgiven, it's been paid for, and your enemy, verse 15, has been defeated, he says, now be very careful that no one judges you with this and that no one beguiles you with this. We said it this way this morning, he first addresses the danger through two additional commands. He first addresses the danger through two additional commands. We looked at the first of those commands this morning, a command against Mosaic legalism. Don't go back to the Mosaic law, he's saying. Whether it's the dietary laws or the special days that get celebrated, don't in any way go back to that. And we said it this way, ignore the judgmental imposition of the law because, verse 17, you understand the prophetic intention of the law. All of those things back there that formed, particularly for the Jews, that formed their way of life for hundreds of years, over a millennium, that formed their way of life, he says, those are done. They were a shadow that pointed ahead to Christ. Tonight, we come to the second command in verse 18 and following, and we want to view it as a command against ascetic dualism. Say, what are we talking about there again? If you remember back with me at the uh, beginning of our time together in the book of Colossians, we talked about part of the error they're dealing with is this teaching that the material world is evil, the physical world is evil, but the spiritual world is good. And so there's a sense in which we need to withdraw from the physical material world because of it, how bad it is. Instead, we need to seek this supernatural world, the, the spirit world, if you will, which will come up later in the text uh, in verse 18 with this idea of worshiping of angels. So we come to verse 18, though. Let's begin and break it down, this command, by breaking it down first and seeing Paul warns against the rulings of these false teachers. This morning, he used the word judge. Don't let anybody judge you, make this determination or form this opinion. Now we come to verse 18, and it says, let no man beguile you, and it really speaks of a ruling that's here. The word for beguile is a word that was used particularly in secular literature. It's only found here in your Bible in the Greek New Testament. It speaks of the ruling of an umpire. We get that. We, we watch games where referees make decisions, umpires make decisions, even today with the help of you know, video technology for instant replay, to say, we want to get this right. We want to make sure that the ruling is correct. Because umpires control what's taking place on a field or court to a certain extent. They're making decisions about what's taking place. They're making rulings about what's taking place. They, they look and judge and say, yeah, that's illegal. No, that's not. By the way, a similar word, it's not the exact same, but a similar word is used very positively in Colossians 3 verse 15, which says that the peace of God 
is to rule in our hearts. The peace of God is to be influencing the decisions, the judgments that we make. But the word that's used here is slightly different because it includes a prefix and it has the idea of it's going to rule against you. So let no one rule against you. Let no one rob you of your proper prize. I was thinking we could probably ask some of you in the room about those stories with your favorite team where you're watching a game and you're like, I can't believe he made that call. It ruined the game. We lost because of the decision of the umpire, and everybody gripes about it and for lengthy periods of time. It's irritating. Here, on a much more important thing, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't let anybody rob you of the prize of salvation in Christ because they're also adding to and insisting on these things. Paul's emphasis, again, is you are complete in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Don't be led away from him. Having considered Paul's warning against the rulings of these false teachers, secondly, Paul warns against the restrictions of their false teaching. The restrictions. What what is it that they're teaching that he's so cautious of saying, now, let's be careful that they don't have the opinion that matters in your life. What's the content of that? First, it's this asceticism, or we could say it's self-restriction, asceticism through self-restriction. He says, in a voluntary humility. Many translations look at this and say it's the idea of a chosen self-abasement. To say, I'm going to restrict myself. I'm going to make this hard for myself. Like if we carry it to its far end extreme, this is the kind of teaching that particularly early on in church history led to the practice of monasticism. We're going to withdraw from the material world in hopes that somehow this makes us better with God. Again, I'll just I'll jump ahead to the end of the text. And this morning we kind of walked. We're going to have to run tonight. Okay? We are going to try to get through chapter 2. But near the end, he's going to say, listen, all of those restrictions, all of those things that you're trying to do, in no way stop your flesh. You cannot legislate yourself into holiness. You cannot restrict yourself into righteousness with God. It is something he must do for you through his son, Jesus Christ. It is something that the Spirit of God must be working in you. And so he begins to warn first against this voluntary humility, this asceticism through self-restriction. In fact, many commentators, as they look at the commands that follow, believe that one of the commands that's in view is that of fasting. Say, well, you know what? Fasting is a wonderful practice. We find it in the Gospels, particularly. You don't find so much command within the New Testament epistles to fast, but you find instruction from Christ. You find example in the book of Acts of people who are fasting. Here's our dedication to God. We're we're trying to focus on Him, and so we're going to restrict and refrain from food. It's not a bad thing, but if we come along and we say, hey, you know what? Because we believe fasting is good, It's really important for spiritual devotion. We find it uh, illustrated in the Gospels in the book of Acts. We've decided that from now on, for anybody who attends church on Sunday, we're going to make sure that you fasted for at least one day this week. Oh, man. (laughs) Right? It's crazy. Like, hey, listen, that's not the place. We're not seeking to say, well, I've got to add something more to my spirituality Because I'm now doing this practice, this voluntary humility. It appears the false teachers here 
to these Colossian believers are adding additional restrictions that he has translated here as voluntary humility, this self-abasement, denying themselves in hopes of earning God's favor. Yeah, and I, I feel like today we have to walk a very careful line as we go through this text because I would remind you very clearly that the call to follow Christ is a call to self-denial. Luke 9.23, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Matthew 16. I mean, it shows up time and time again. The call to Christianity is a call to self-denial. And yet it is not our self-denial that earns us God's favor. Everything we need to be right with God. In fact, it was represented in some of the words that we sang together a few moments ago is found in Christ's righteousness given to us by faith in him. Again, there's first this appeal to asceticism through self-restriction, but secondly, there's an appeal of mysticism through supernatural fascination, this worshiping of angels. Okay, so we're going to voluntarily restrict ourselves in this humility, this self-abasement, but we're also going to worship these supernatural beings as the idea that there's somehow an emanation from God. I won't belabor the point here because we touched it in the introduction to our series, but if you just stop and think culturally, we have a fascination with the supernatural. A fascination, whether it's angels or the immaterial world, to think, well, there might be something out there and there's got to be, and biblically we can look and say, well, God does tell us that angels are present, but God also tells us they were created by God for the worship of God, occasionally serving as his messengers or protectors of his people. But as such, as we go through the New Testament, we find that they are ministering spirits never to be ministered unto. Here, the Colossian believers are struggling with an error that tells them they need to worship angels. And in fact, I won't take the time to go through all the historical detail, but if you start to track the historical record for this geographical area, we have notations from about 300 AD up into the 780s AD of angel worship taking place in this area. And Paul is warning this, these believers, he's never met them as we've talked about before, saying, make sure you stay away from that. That has nothing to do with their relationship with God. Don't let anybody make a ruling against you that says you need to do this. In fact, notice how Paul indicts this appeal as we continue on in verse 18. He describes their behavior this way. They are intruding into the things which he hath not seen. They're vainly pushed, puffed up by his fleshly mind. In my, I guess, my modern way of putting it, I just say, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. They think they have this figured out in their minds, but they're speaking about things that they don't really know anything about. They're talking about things that they have not seen. It's their ignorant pride on display. Again, I think that's worth noting as we're trying to personally practice what the text says here, just to remind ourselves that pride is deceptive. It convinces us that we're right, even when we're wrong. To go, you know what, hey, everybody needs to do this. What, what verse? Because Scripture matters. And if God said, we'd better. If it's my opinion, then maybe I need to back off. Maybe I need to stand down and say, well, here's what I think. But you, with the Spirit of God, in the Word of God, need to determine what's right for you. 
Here the error is incredibly serious and spiritually fatal because Paul is saying this leads you away from Christ. It's a ruling that robs you of your sal- or t- uh, distracts from your salvation in Christ. That's where Paul goes next with the second command. This morning there was kind of two parts, verse uh, 16 being one and then verse 17, knowing that this shadow points to Christ. He does something very similar here where the command was given in verse 18, but then having warned them against these, uh, these, the rulings of the false teachers, the restrictions of their false teaching, third, in verse 19, he warns against the replacement of Jesus. When he's telling them, hey, there's this voluntary humility, take on these things to restrict yourself, worship these angels in this way. What you are doing is being led away from Jesus Christ as your authority, from Jesus Christ as your head. And for us, the issues often look different today, but we need to be on guard about allowing secondary things to become primary. To say, you know what, the most important thing to me is what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Even to what we were talking about Wednesday night, to say, because of the mercies of God, It has changed my life in this way. Because of the work of salvation through Christ, my life has been transformed this way. So he says, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increasing of God. I want to draw a couple thoughts that parallel our study in Ephesians 4 if you were with us in adult Bible study over the previous quarter because the parallels of language are very similar. But notice with me first, part of the danger in replacing Jesus is that Jesus holds the position of authority. Jesus holds the position of authority. He says they're not holding the head from which everything else in the body, particularly its growth, occurs. Again, it it amazes me. I, I think of the Waterbury's niece. It just amazes me to think transplant, heart transplant, kidney transplant, like that I mean, praise the Lord for advancements through medicine. It's just astounding to me. But you know, when we think about our heads and all that goes on there, we're not talking about transplants. There is no replacement. To go, you know, my, my, my head is doing everything going on. It's issuing commands constantly. And the Bible wonderfully uses that picture, whether we're in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians chapter 4 or here in Colossians chapter 2, to say Jesus Christ is our head. We don't want any distraction from the one who holds this position of absolute authority. But not only does Jesus hold the position of authority, he makes all provision for the body. He says, from which all the body, all the joints, all the ligaments, the bands, having nourishment ministered, knit together, increases. Jesus dictates what the body needs, through whom it needs it. It, Again, we saw that pictured in Ephesians chapter 4, where we're told that that every part, every joint has a role. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, where through the Spirit of God, every part of the body is gifted very uniquely. Along those lines, as we look here and see all the body by joints and bands, I would remind you, our church body, every church body is is a very differently gifted, diverse group. Say every joint, every band here, this nourishment that's brought comes through what God has put in it. God places 
gifts, different people together in the body to help it grow. The implicit challenge being that we aren't distracted from our head, that we are involved, that we are using what he's given to us. Beyond its gifted diversity, I believe that it's also pointing to the relational unity that's present, all the body through the joints and bands. We touched this in Ephesians 4, particularly verse 16, compacted by that which every joint supplies, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Say, so here's all these different parts of the body, but where they touch, where they contact is incredibly important. I remember if I said it in a service, I know I said it in one of the Sunday school classes, um, maybe it's been different for you, but having broken bones, having had different surgeries, for me, the most painful injuries were the dislocations. I don't know if you've been there, maybe you would say, ah, it's different, just one man's experience. Dislocated bones, torn ligaments are incredibly, incredibly painful things. They need attention. They need to be dealt with. Ephesians 4.16 takes that picture. Here, Colossians chapter 2 takes the picture of these bands, these joints, saying everything that takes place in there is governed by the head. He's over it all. There needs to be this uh, proper working of every joint, of every part. The relationships within the body need to function well. The goal through this gifted diversity, this relational unity, is its increasing maturity. You look there again in verse 19, it says, when all this nourishment is being ministered by the head through these different parts, when it's put together, it's knit together, it increases with the increase of God. What's needed for growth, for sustenance, is supplied, so it grows the way that God intends for his glory. It doesn't grow based on the personality of the teacher. It doesn't grow based on the restrictions that have been added. It grows by the way the head has gifted the body, put it together, and continues to work through it as its head. Paul's warning against a danger, telling them, don't go back to the law. We saw that this morning, verse 16 and 17. Paul's now telling them, verses uh, 18 and 19, stay away from these extra restrictions and the worship of angels. They distract from the head. Having addressed this danger through additional commands, though, we want to see, secondly, the danger addressed through an answered question. It sounds very similar to what we've covered already, so we'll move quickly, but notice first the question in verses 20 to 22. Paul says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? And then he gives us a sampling of those. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish at with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Again, there's much packed in here, but for sake of time, we'll move quickly. Uh, you go back to the end of verse 21. Uh, notice that he refers to these restrictions. says, these are the teachings of men. This isn't the command of God. He particularly says there, this, it's the teaching, the commands that men have given. These are personal opinions, their preferences, their standards as to what can and can't be done. And he's saying, be careful with those because they're telling you, you can't do these things. You can't eat these things. You can't celebrate these things. And he's saying, what value do they really have as these restrictions of men? Again, we are always in danger when our personal opinions become primary causes. We should have them. 
God's given us his word. He's given us his spirit to go, let's go to the word. Let's see what it says. But as he's listed some, touch not, taste not, handle not, he says, these all perish with the using. In other words, you're, you're saying don't partake of these temporal things, which after they've been partaken of or even afterwards are destroyed, they're, they're nothing. They, they don't have any bearing on the eternal. I think, again, even of Jesus' um, instruction in Mark chapter 7, where he indicts the religious leaders because they're concerned about the disciples uh, eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus rightly, very wonderfully teaches them, look, it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. It's not what you're taking in. So you can say, well, you know what? Don't eat that. I mean, we live in a world today that's full of things. It's like, oh, no, you know what's in that? You can't eat that. Like, we've got plenty of instruction there. Suppose we could add that to Christianity and say, hey, it's, your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Don't eat that, right? High fructose corn syrup. You pick yours of choice, right? Like, No, it doesn't matter. It's not what goes into us that defiles us. It's what comes out of us that defiles us. Paul, in essence, is saying when he first starts on the focus on the resurrection, Because of what God has done in joining you to Christ, you're dead to this world. You're dead to sin. You've been risen with him. Why would you go back and try to control behavior by adding all of these laws, these teachings of mankind? They have what they need. They have the spirit of Christ. I alluded to it this morning. We've talked often about it before, but I would point you once more to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because Paul beautifully paints a contrast in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says there was this old covenant. It was glorious, but it was a ministry of condemnation. It was written on tables of stone. He's pointing to the Ten Commandments. He's pointing to the old covenant. And yet he's saying that old covenant, as glorious as it was, it brought about, it calls it a ministration of death. Here's a ministry that says, you're wrong, you deserve to die, you're condemned in your sins. And then he goes, but there is this ministration of the Spirit. It's not written on tables of stone, it's written on tables of heart. It's not written with the letter of the law, but by the Spirit of Christ. Because when Christ indwells us, he transforms us. He changes us. It's not an argument for, well, some kind of loose living. Now, Romans 6 makes that abundantly clear. But it's saying, no, it's not about external rules that change me. It's about the internal spirit of God working within me. So he starts by raising that question, verses 20 to 22, but then he comes down to a lesson in verse 23. With what they have taught, these teachings, these doctrines, these commands of men, they appear to be wise. They have indeed a show of wisdom. They appear to be wise, and that wisdom shows up in this self-imposed worship. This will worship, we could call it DIY religion. Like, I've just chosen to do all of these things uh, because I think this is what is right and this gains me favor with God. No. God's favor is through Jesus Christ. Not only that, he says it's not just about this will worship, this self-imposed worship or religious practice, this humility, this self-abasement or this neglect of the body where you're restricting it, trying to get away from it all. Right? Because again, as many have pointed to, there's many quotes out there to read. Like you you look at what happened with monks and monasticism, that idea is like you can take people away from sin, but 
the sin is still within them. Right? It leads to the second part of the verse, while they appear to be wise, while these restrictions might make sense, and logically we go, yeah, I get it, that's good, that'll help. They're ineffective and do not work in overcoming the flesh. They're ineffective and do not work in overcoming the flesh. Those of you that have worked with children in the classroom, maybe your own home, I think probably get this. In fact, it came up in our Sunday school class this morning. I was not teaching like Blackstone was teaching, just to note, you know what, you don't really fully control your child. You can control certain aspects, but you don't control everything that's thought. You don't like what all comes out. And you can say, well, you know what the answer is? We need another rule. Let's add it, 783rd rule in the Brabson household. Right? Put it in the handbook. It doesn't change us. It's not enough. We can't simply add more rules. And that was the point of the Old Testament law, even to what we read this morning in Galatians chapter 3, being the law being our schoolmaster, or in Hebrews chapter 10. It just reminds us we're sinful. We're in need of a Savior. We need something more. External rules alone will not work, whether it's the Mosaic law or the laws, the rules of these teachers. How do I stop the lusts of the flesh? Rules? More restrictions? Do I withdraw from it all? Do I treat myself harshly as though I'm going to somehow punish myself in hopes of overcoming? The end of verse 23 answers it. They are not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. We could say it this way. They are not, in to any, they are not of any value in stopping the flesh. None. What stops all of that is verse 15. He spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He's destroyed the enemies that would exercise control over us. The prince of the power of the air that now worketh in the children of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2. says, no, he's, he's been defeated. He's been destroyed. So where he's going to go, where we'll go in weeks ahead is, if he then be risen with Christ, if you have that victory in Christ because of your faith in him, set your affection on things above. That's what motivates us to live differently. And yes, it means we are going to keep working to destroy the flesh. We're going to mortify Colossians 3 verse 5. But that comes after salvation, not for our relationship or righteousness with God. It is our relationship to Christ and the work of His Spirit that overcomes the flesh, not the requirements that do so. We can build as many fences as we want. We can make as many rules as we want. We can create incredibly hard consequences for ourselves. And yet at the end of the day, the only hope in my battle with the flesh is salvation through Jesus Christ. The only hope for me to live out, to walk in Christ is for his spirit to be controlling me. Because otherwise, it's Galatians 5, what we looked at in our previous Wednesday night series. It's the lust of the flesh that will come out. It won't be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. It won't. So Paul is saying, keep Christ your primary focus. 
Don't get distracted and say, well, you know what? Maybe we need to go back and add these laws in that we used to be under. Maybe we need to add that what these guys are teaching and just restrict ourselves further because this material world is so evil. And if we can just escape all of the material world, if, if we can just withdraw, maybe we'll be more holy. Well, let's also worship angels because they're part of the spiritual world and maybe someday we can be there as well. Say, no, put all that stuff aside. This teaching of men is of no value. You have what you need in Christ. Again, for us, as we head into another week, I hope you will glory in your walk with Christ. Say, God, thank you for forgiving me of my sins, Colossians 2, verse 13, verse 14. Thank you for giving me victory over my enemy. Lord, protect me from the error of thinking that my works gain me favor with you. Rather, Lord, let your love for me, your mercy for me, motivate me to live differently today so that you would use me for your glory. Let's close this evening in prayer. Father, this evening we have tried to cover a number of verses from your word that contain some important warning for us. Lord, I pray that we would be vigilant not to look at ourselves, our performance, our failures, our rules, our self-evaluation to determine our standing with you. But Lord, I pray that you would keep us focused on your son, Jesus Christ, to realize that you took him who knew no sin and made him sin for us, that we could be made your righteousness in him, that we could understand that you look at us and see us as meeting your standard, that there is no condemnation against us because we are in your son. And Lord, then as we see that as true, as you remind us of the mercy that you've shown to us, we would very willingly, joyfully, be transformed to live for you, even in light of some of the practical commands that are given in the verses ahead. Or for each believer here, I pray that once more you would just cause us to rejoice in what you've done for us through Christ while being on guard against error that would distract from him. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.